take out your Bible, please, and turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Ezra. Our passage this morning is Ezra chapter 5, starting at the beginning and ending in Ezra chapter 6, verse 12. And a bit of context, I know some of this information is repeated each time that I'm up here, but I prefer to take a running start at things, and so hopefully it's a good reminder to you, and if anything, know that it helps me to start with some context. Even you should be thankful that I don't go back to Genesis 1 each time. Uh, So we are in the book of Ezra. Why? Uh, Because Ezra is dealing with, honestly, it's sort of like the narrative sequel to the book of Daniel. And we went through the book of Daniel as a congregation some years ago. And so that's why it seemed natural to explore what God's message is for us out of the book of Ezra. Ezra divides fairly neatly into two parts, two broad themes in Ezra. Chapters 1 through 6 are mainly concerned with the rebuilding of God's temple. And next Lord's Day, we will see that work finished. And chapters 7 through 10 are primarily concerned with the rebuilding of God's people. And the background is that God promised by way of threat to the Israelites, if you disobey me, I will send you into exile. He promised this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, amongst a few other places, even hinted at in our reading this morning. And 2 Kings shows the great disobedience, especially of the king Manasseh, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and committed many abominations, things I even hesitate to say out loud, which are right there in 2 Kings 21. But the one I continue to highlight is that he worshipped the host of heaven. He worshipped created beings, demons he worshipped, rather than the creator. And so the Lord, burning with anger against Manasseh, sent the Israelites to Babylon, to the promised exile. In Daniel, we see some things of their account in exile, some of the ways that the faithful especially behaved in Babylon. Psalm 133 maybe reflects the feelings of it. How can we sing your song, Lord, here in a foreign land? What a helpful and bittersweet Psalm 137 is. But how faithful and kind is the Lord that he provided proactively instructions for people if they were to go into exile. In 1 Kings 8, it says at the dedication of the temple of Solomon, if you disobey me, and by the way, there is no one who does not, and I send you into exile, repent and pray. And how are you to pray? Toward the land which I gave your fathers. And we see Daniel doing that in Daniel chapter 6, the famous story, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel's being persecuted. Why? For praying. And why is he so adamant about how he prays? He is being, uh, he is being obedient to Jeremiah 29, uh, 1 Kings 8, excuse me, he is praying toward the land. Jeremiah 29 gives some other instructions for how God's people in exile are to behave. Build houses, plant gardens, take wives, have families. And so the Lord is faithful to his people, and he delivers them out of exile. And at the beginning of Ezra, we see that start to happen. Ezra 1.1, our first sermon, had this as its theme, the inspiration, the interpretation, and influence of God's word. Ezra chapters 1 and 2, as it pictures God's people being physically returned to his land, was a picture of God's people being prepared to enter into his presence and worship. Ezra chapter 3, when they dedicated the foundation of the altar and they shouted out with great shouts of joy mixed with shouts of sorrow, was a picture for us of our unity in Christ in this age and the age to come. And Ezra chapter 4, when the Samaritans persecuted the Israelites for their building, and they tattled to the king, and he sent a cease and desist letter, our theme there was living in God's two kingdoms. And just a few Sundays ago, the first two verses of Ezra 5, if you remember when Haggai and Zechariah come and prophesy and preach to God's people, We had as our theme there, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. 
Our theme this morning is the Lord will accomplish his work. The Lord will accomplish his work. And we've been talking about this picture. God's people before exile, under the Davidic kingdom, there is a king, there are laws, they are sovereign, they are geopolitical and spiritual and religious. They offer worship, but they also govern themselves. But then that is done away when they get sent into exile. And so now we see a figure of the church emerging because now God's people, after exile, back in Israel, are primarily spiritual. They still are under foreign rule. First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, eventually Greek and Roman. So they no longer are operating under... um, such a stark visual as the Davidic kingdom. Now they have these two kingdoms that they're dealing with. And so the church emerges slowly. And I shared with you a few times that in the Old Testament, it might be helpful to think of the garden pre-fall, Adam and Eve, and the Davidic kingdom and up to the time of Solomon. Those might be the best picture we have of the future kingdom, the, the kingdom to come. But the time of the Israelites in exile may be the best picture we have of our time here today. I think that's why it is such a helpful place to be studying. So that by way of context, what's the introduction to our passage now here more specifically? It says now, right? We said now the prophets. Now is about 15 years after the Samaritans sent the letter back to the king Artaxerxes, and he gave them a cease and desist letter. Now is in the time of Darius, and the first couple of years of the reign of Darius were tumultuous. He had a lot of political upheaval, and one of the things he did to uh, suppress this is he appointed 20 provinces in his empire presumably took out a map and drew some lines. That's the way I would have done it. And in each of those 20 provinces, he set up a governor or satrapy, a satrap, which is also what we see in the books of Daniel. Uh, And so each of these areas was given a governor, which was given a power for tax collection and to rule. And here in Ezra 5, we even find the names of these governors. Tatanay, the governor of the province beyond the river, and his assistant, Shether Bozani. Together with their associates, they are the local governing body of the province that includes Judah, Syria, and Palestine. So that's what we're dealing with when Tatanai and Shether Boz- uh, Bozani enter. They are the appointed governors of this region, 120th, let's say, of the king's empire. They are the governor of the, the province beyond the river. It's been 15 years since they stopped, and they stopped because of fear that the Samaritans stirred up and that the king told them they must stop building. And then, just a few Sundays ago, we see that God sends Haggai and Zechariah to stir up the hearts of the leaders. Our passage this morning will be under three headings. The first one is the eye of God, the eye of God. The second is the God of heaven and earth. The God of heaven and earth. And the third is the king of kings. So point one, the eye of God, concerns Ezra 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear this, and I am reading again in the ESV translation. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elder of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. 
as soon as news reached the local governor that they were doing something in that city, they were building up, they couldn't help but insert themselves. Who's doing this? What are you doing? Give me some details. I must understand. What exactly is going on here? It's my job to keep this part of the king's uh, empire under submission. By whose decree are you doing that? Who gave you permission to build? Give me your names. Give me your names. Who, who are your names? Who are these people? Little tattlers. The Jews, by the way, for 15 years have been doing something. I don't know if you can think of what it was. We talked about it just a couple of Sundays ago. Haggai admonished them for what? How dare you live in homes with paneled walls while our Lord's house lies in ruin. By the way, the building of their glorious and big homes lining the walls with wood was actually in violation of the king's cease and desist letter from Ezra 4. Because he says, you better stop building even the city. So they've actually been in violation of the cease and desist letter for 15 years. Nobody cared. Nobody cared when they were building their own homes. But as soon as they started doing what? The work of the Lord. As soon as their work turns spiritual, Satan comes prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour them. They faced no opposition when they worked for themselves. As soon as the work starts on the temple, Satan sent his adversaries. And who are these adversaries? As I named them, Tatanai, and uh, I'm going to keep saying it wrong, Shether, Bozani, and their associates. These are the governors. They've been called the eye of the king, the king's eye. The king must have some way of seeing what's going on in the remotest corners of his kingdom. So the Persian inspectors were often called the king's eye. And the king's eye is, at this point, the tool Satan is using to try to disrupt God's work. These are the eyes and ears of the king. Satan waits, and as soon as he sees that something of God is percolating up to the surface, he throws another dart. The Samaritans do it 15 years ago, and here he is now with Persian local governors throwing another dart. John Trapp says, Dream not of delicacy in God's ways, but suffer hardship as good soldier of Jesus Christ. We know it's coming. There is opposition. But it says they, they. Who were they? They, being Jeshua, Zerubbabel, and their prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they would not stop building. Did they stop last time? Indeed, they did stop. They were afraid and bullied, and they stopped. This time, they won't stop until their report is sent to the king. Why? What was different this time? The king's eyes are sent to them, but this time, the eye of God is on them. And by the way, this is concurrent with Haggai and Zechariah's ministry. I'm convinced this is the period right now of Haggai's second sermon. Starts in Haggai chapter 2. If you recall, his first sermon was a strong admonition. How dare you build your homes while the temple lies in ruin? So he stirred up the spirit of the leaders and they started to build. That's what's happening right here in Ezra. They are building. And yet they faced opposition. And what did Haggai say? Haggai 2.4, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people. For I am with you, says the Lord, for my eye is on you. For my eye is on you. So Ezra says, but the eye of their God was on the elder of the Jews. They stood fast because the prophets were reminding the people, our God is with us. His eye is upon us. And their eye was upon the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear toward their cry. Earlier in the psalm, verse 34, 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The eye of the Lord was upon the people. And that is why they could listen to Haggai and be strong. This time, they said, we will not stop the work of the Lord until our report is sent to Darius. Because 
the eye of God is upon us. What does it mean that God's eye was upon them? Does God have a body? We do a catechism at home. No, God is spirit. God does not have a body. Our confession says in chapter 2, paragraph 1, that he is most pure spirit and invisible. Without body, parts, passions. So does he have an eye? No, he doesn't have an eye. This is, here's a million dollar word, anthropomorphic language. It's attributing to God a physical characteristic that humans have. It was all over our, our worship service so far. There's the hands of the Lord, the right arm of the Lord, the eye of the Lord. You can also throw out another big word if you want, and I think I got this right, anthropopathic. This is attributing to God a human emotion. Both of these are what? Accommodated language. It's accommodated to us so we can understand something. And so when we see the eye of God, we do not think of something God has. This is showing us something he is doing. God does not have an eye, but it says the eye of God. That's accommodating to us, and so we ought to look and see what is God doing. What does an eye do? An eye sees. An eye sees. He is a God who sees his people. He is looking upon the elders of the Jews. He sees them. And when he turns his eye to them, he protects them. The image I have in mind is of a mother at the park watching her children. And as many of us know, you count up a pretty high number. Some of us have to go one, two, three, four. Some go as five, as six, eight, or nine. We're counting our children. Mothers, you're putting your eye on your children. And why? To protect them. Even if you haven't gotten up and done anything, you're watching them. And by way of watching, you're protecting. When the Lord sees his people, he is protecting them. Psalm 38, 18 says this, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those whose hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The Lord sees his people and he answers their cries. Psalm 17, 2 has one of these cries. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. The Psalms cry out, Lord, turn your eye to me so that you can protect me and you can vindicate me and you can deliver even my soul from death. The eye of God is on his people. Not like the idols. I had Isaiah 44 as the passage to turn to, but our call to worship had it as well. Psalm 115. Not like idols made from human hands who have ears but do not hear, have eyes but do not see. Those are blind. Our Lord is not blind. He has no eye and yet sees. How much better than the idols made from human hands. And you see in Psalm 38, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him that he may deliver them from death. Whoever did this happen to? Our Lord Jesus Christ was delivered unto death and then rose again from the grave. And he rose for us. So what instruction do we have here? Philippians 1.28. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be frightened of anything by your opponents. Even these king's eyes from the province beyond the river... Don't even be frightened of those opponents because the eye of God is upon you. And I think we have many things that can cause us fear these days. I certainly don't want to list them because I'll start to rant as if you spend any time with me, you know. What is possibly saving us from those things? The eye of God. And we don't live in times like Solomon. Remember, Solomon built his temple with peace on every side, surrounded by no enemies. We live in days much different than that don't we? And yet we should not fear because the eye of God is on us. And the eye of God is on us in his son, Jesus Christ. 
We are gathered under the altar, it says in Revelation, under the altar in his temple, covered in his blood, passed over from the angel of death and delivered unto light. The New Testament uses these terms to talk about the sacrifice, the exile, and the deliverance from exile. How much greater we have been delivered from the exile of death. So we should not be afraid of our enemies. We should be thankful for the eye of God looking over us. Job 36.7 says this. Could have just done the whole sermon here. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Whoever has been righteous, that their eye, the eye of God, would not be withdrawn from him. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is the one who is righteous, and the eye of God was ever upon him. Psalm 2 furthers the story that says in Job 36, and he is the king upon his throne. He who sits in heaven is doing what? Laughing at the nations trying to oppose him. He says, yet I have my king on Zion, my holy hill. My eye is upon him and his eye is upon us in him. So may we take heart and never fear. The eye of the shepherd is upon us. Point two, the God of heaven and of earth. Verses, uh, actually, I have it wrong here. Verses six through 17. I'm just gonna frame this for you. This is a letter that's being written by what I like to call the snitches. And they're writing a letter. And within the letter, they're gonna give their opinions. And they're also going to quote the Israelites. Hey, king, you better know something. And by the way, here's what they have to say for themselves. So frame that for me in your mind. This is a copy. By the way, Ezra's like a copy and paste of a lot of these things. These are like actual copies of these letters that have been put into the text. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house? and to finish this structure. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send his pleasure in this matter. This is the copy of the letter that was sent. By the way, you could go back to the end of verse 5 real quick and say, but they said they won't stop until Darius's responses return. That kind of is implied at the end of this letter. Send us your pleasure in this matter, king. We're not stopping until we hear from you because we know we're right. You can go search the archives of Cyrus and you can see that what we say is true. So the, even the governors, uh, I'm going to keep trying to remember their names, uh, Shether, Bozani, and Tatnai, even the governors are sort of vindicating them. He says, great stones are being put up 
and timber in the walls. What is that a contrast with? That's Haggai saying, stop lining the walls of your homes and start the work on the house of the Lord. I think I mentioned this before. Probably the same supply of lumber. They were pilfering for their homes. But now they're being vindicated because even the king's eyes are saying they're lining the temple with wood and doing these great things. And what did they call him? The great God. The great God. Hmm. John Trapp says this in his commentary on it, which is just too good to pass up. Not only a great God, but in Job 33.12, it says a God greater than man. Not only great, but greater. Not only greater, but in Psalm 95.3, it says the greatest. A great king above all gods. Not only great or greater or greatness, but in Psalm 145.3, it says, greatness itself is our God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is that great God that even the pagans see and say, they're building their temple to this great God. And they're moving these large stones and lining the walls. And so what happens is when they go, what are your names and who gave you permission to do this? The answer is recorded right here. They explain themselves. We worship the God of heaven and of earth. And what is the God of heaven and earth delineating? It's what it's not. We worship the God of heaven and earth, not the God of Babylon or Samaria or Egypt. Not a local deity, not a local deity, not a fallen angel, not a demon. We don't worship any of those things that are trying to turn people's minds away. We don't worship a talking serpent. We don't worship Baal or Molech or Nebu or Marduk. No, we don't worship a created spirit that is masquerading as God, a cheap conjurer of tricks that's trying to steal worship from the God of heaven and earth. That is not who we worship. No, we worship the God of heaven and earth, the God of the physical and the spiritual. This is the Lord that we serve, not some local pagan deity, a false God, but I might say not a fake one, real spiritual demonic influence over these people leading them astray. No, we don't worship those are created beings. We worship the uncreated one. In the beginning, our God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. He is God over all, and it is him that we serve, this great God of heaven and of earth. And look at what they say in verse 12. It was him that we sinned against. It was him that we sinned against. We are here as punishment for our sins because for a time we were put out of the possession of God's house. Not because the gods of the nations have prevailed against our God. That would have been the mindset of the people in ancient near Mideastern culture. They would have thought, oh, this God must have defeated their God. That's why the Jews went into Babylon. The God of Babylon must be so much greater than the God of the Jews. No, we are not here because for a time your God beat up our God in some cosmic wrestle. No, we are here for one reason, and that is because we angered the God of heaven. We worship the God of heaven and earth, not a local deity. And because we angered him, we were delivered for a time over to Babylon. And even think about the defense they make of themselves. We are not seditious. We're not trying to set ourselves up in opposition to you. We don't worship a local deity, and therefore, we can't even be charged with making a faction or setting up a sect. We're not paramilitary. We're not trying to run away and cause an enclave. We are not politically at war with you. We are paying homage to a God on whom the whole of creation depends, and therefore, we ought to be protected and assisted by all, because he is who? The God of heaven, and not only the God of heaven, but the God of earth as well. 
And you might see in verses 11 and 12, two kingdoms, and maybe even somewhat seemingly set against each other. They says, we worship the God of heaven and earth. We are his servants. But as soon as they say we angered him, what do they say he is? The God of heaven. We angered the God of heaven. It's as if sin sets heaven against earth. And we can see here that the spiritual is over the physical. And that's why we worship God in spirit and truth and wait for the day when he comes back and sets everything right. This is the great God of heaven and earth. But his eye is on us. His eye is upon us. His eye is upon us, and so we're not going to stop until we hear what the king has to say in the matter. See even the progression of God's enemies softening. The Samaritans 15 years ago taunted, bribed, infiltrated them. Remember we talked about that? But this time they maybe are a little more concerned, like, man, the God of heaven and earth, we worship all of these gods, but even we recognize that the Israelite God seems to be over the other gods. We might actually be afraid of opposing the great God in Israel too much. Matthew Henry says it this way. Remember, the, the Jews spent 15 years not in service to the Lord. He says, the Lord warms the cool-hearted Jews just as he cools their hot-headed enemies. He's pacifying the situation. He's warming them up with fervor to serve him just as he is subduing the enemies. Just as he is subduing the enemies. So let us then learn with meekness and fear to do what? Give a reason for the hope that is in us, just as they do. We should be ready to declare what we do in God's service and why we do it. But we don't defend ourselves. They're not saying here, we are doing what is right. We're basically good people. Leave us alone. We have a right to be here. No, they say what? We sinned. We sinned against the God of heaven and earth. But his eye is upon us. We defend him. We make a defense of him. That is the reason for the hope that is in us. Some of us may face these types of questions. Why do you go to church? And why every Sunday? Why every Sunday? Why make such a big deal out of it? Why are you so at odds with some of the progressive views of our culture? Is it such a big deal to take just a small little pinch of essence and just burn it to Caesar? Why make such a big deal out of that? Why, why do you have to make so much of church and worship that it seems like all you ever talk about and all you ever care about? Do you think you're better than me? Is that what it is, Christian? Maybe we don't get this directly, but maybe you imagine it's coming or you imagine it would be there. And what do we do with that? We proclaim as they do. No, we're sinners. Great ones. Paul says he's the biggest of us all. Maybe we'd arm wrestle over that. But we serve the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. And he's rescued us from our sin. And how did he do that? He took our place. He took our place. So it's him alone that we take courage. And because he loves us and equips us and fights for us, we can follow him. We can follow him. That's why we have our hope. That's why we worship. We turn our eyes to the God of heaven and earth, and his eye is upon us. And so the Jews are saying, we serve the God of heaven and earth. It is him that is making us strong. Just as Haggai said, be strong, we're being strong. And we're being strong in the Lord. We're making a defense of our Lord. And so the next point, the king of kings, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia and in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, and a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury 
And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shetherbozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governors of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. This cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven." And pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. This is the response that Darius makes. With all haste, hurry up and make it known. They are to rebuild. You get out of their way. And further, give them money and tribute. And give it from your supply. From the supply from you, um, the governors of the province beyond the river. And why is he doing this? Did he convert to Christianity? Is this a brother in Christ? I hope so. But here I say no. There's a famous document called the Cyrus Cylinder. And he says on the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, it's of this same king, may all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebu for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, say this. He reconstituted all of these local deities, set up their high places, and asked the priests of all of these gods, pray daily for me and my sons. So as he does of the one true God of heaven and earth, he does for the demonic, terrible, pagan gods all around him. So before we see too much in it, let it be known that he wanted to have favor with every local deity, and perhaps it's political peace that he wants as well. But he does set up a curse. He gives a curse. If anyone opposes this, pull out a beam, impale them on it, tear their house down. And if anybody tries to tear down the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Hear what John Trapp says about this. The Romans who were instruments eventually of the destruction of this very same temple may have felt the effects of this curse because ever since they tore it down, their kingdom was in quick decline. Quite possibly see some of the historic fulfillment even of this curse of the pagan king Darius. And so ends the narrative portion, but not the spiritual lesson because we ought to look to the king of kings there is a king greater than Darius, our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how much opposition the elders of the Jews faced, if our Lord sets his will to accomplish his task, not even the gates of hell could withstand him. Much less Tatanai, local governor, much less a lazy, fearful, and apathetic people of God, much less Darius, the mortal king of a long-since fallen empire, much less all of those things could oppose God if our Lord sets his will to accomplish his task. And our Lord is where? In Psalm 2 it says, He is on Zion, his holy hill, as the king of kings. And he has an inheritance. What's the inheritance? The nations. And just as he started the work of building this temple, nothing can stand in his way. Not even death 
could stand in his way. Not even death could stand in his way of Jesus accomplishing his work. John 4.34 says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The king of kings accomplishes his work. This is the theme of our sermon. And what is that work? What is the work that he accomplishes? To defeat death and redeem his chosen people. Our great redeemer. There is a redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. He redeems his people. The lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. He accomplishes his work. And he has the creator of heaven and earth. The maker and sustainer. And this great God, maker of heaven and earth, has his eyes on his people. And he is the King Almighty. It says in the Heidelberg Catechism, what? We need him as king because we can't defeat our enemies. We can't defeat our enemy. What's our greatest enemy? Death is our greatest enemy. Can you defeat it? It bats a thousand. No. We need our king to defeat our enemies for us. And we need him as king. Why? Even if we somehow could manage that, we can't even lead ourselves. We can't even lead ourselves. What does the Bible call us? We sing about it. Sheep. What does a sheep need? A shepherd. A sheep needs a shepherd. But how could we fear the enemies of God when we have such a shepherd as the king of kings, the maker of heaven and earth? He will accomplish his task. He will. He will accomplish it no matter what. There are so many things in this world that we could be afraid of. A couple come to mind. Right now, in Onaville, Haiti, which is where some of us, Doug and Mackenzie and Ami and Heather, have visited and many of you have prayed for, right now the gangs have taken it over to the degree that they are surrounding the compound where the children are. There are guns going off right outside of the compound. The pastors moved into the compound there to protect the children. It couldn't really get worse. And yet we know that whatever the Lord sets his will to do, he will accomplish. So we ought not to fear even his enemies. He will set his will. That's why we say, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Lord, finish your work. Finish your work. I want to share a story that's, this was written on Friday. This was written on Friday. And forgive me, I don't have it shortened as much as I want, so I'm going to do my best to paraphrase here. But I believe this man is a pastor. His unbelieving adult child recently became completely comatose, on life support, probably brain dead. And for the last two weeks, this dear brother has had to suffer through that. And he says here, Bailey is a very troubled and sinful young lady. She is in the ICU as a direct result of the unwise choices she has made. This is two weeks ago. She abused drugs and alcohol, and it may be that it directly results in her death. We are dealing with conversations now where we are being prepared to think about pulling the plug. I don't want to unnecessarily disparage my daughter, but I want her situation to be a warning to others. The end is not as glamorous as the parties. Nobody is stopping by and saying, hi, I used to party with her and I wanted to see how she is. She's kind of dying alone with her family around her. And this is him writing on Friday. Friday, they took her off of life support and she died just a couple of days ago. I believe she's in her early 20s. He says, I cried so hard on Wednesday that I wondered if I injured myself. My eyes hurt that night. The last two weeks have been alternatively crying and laughing. Remember the end of Ezra 3? Remembering and forgetting. Sadness and joy, anger and humility. The one constant has been worship and faithfulness. We have not failed to remember our God and worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's only by God's grace I can even say that we've not reviled him or rallied against him. He says he has to deal with something that is very difficult to get your head around. He is standing beside his daughter for two weeks, praying and calling out for the Lord to save her. 
physically but spiritually. He says, I've had to overcome doubt that God could save my daughter's soul once her brain had been so damaged. She's essentially brain dead. Only the stem of her brain is working and it's keeping her breathing. And he knows that what he saw of his daughter is that she was not a Christian at this point. And he is there saying, I know it's not going to be possible for Bailey to call on the name of the Lord physically. According to the doctor, she could not even hear due to the brain damage. He is nothing much more than a brain stem. But the same God who called light out of the darkness and created the world out of nothing isn't limited by these things. I became convinced not only that God could choose to wash Bailey, but that his hand has been in this all along. And he goes on to say that through the miracle of social media, which some of us might say is a curse, but none other than a well-known pastor, Justin Peters, got a hold of the story, tweeted it out, and he says, wonder of wonders, it seems like suddenly the whole world is praying for Bailey. And so he stood by her and he prayed. And he sang psalms and he cried. And the nurses closed the door because he was so loud. And he says, I'm not embarrassed to say it, but I'm kind of a wailer when I cry. This man, on Friday, two days ago, at the deathbed of his daughter, her death a sure thing, is crying and wailing out to the Lord that she would be saved. And I wish I had a happy ending to the story, but we don't know. But I know this man is professing the faith that we're talking about right here, which is, Lord, if it is your will that you want to save Bailey, I know that you accomplish your will. Not even a brain that doesn't seem to be working while she is still on this side of eternity can prevent you from proclaiming that she is yours. Lord, if it is your will, if it is your will, and he trusts in the God of miracles, but he knows ultimately it is God who wills and works those things. Not even the gates of hell can stand in the way of the work that our Lord wants to do. And if he wants to save Bailey, even in such a state as that, he will save her. He will accomplish his work. I don't know if you're anything like me, but... I sin. You're like me, by the way. This is some of the ways I sin. I fear and get angry, and I get sad. I can't imagine a life without those things. I can't imagine a life where I don't feel that way sometimes. It does, I, I can't understand it. I, wanna, I worry. I want to protect my family. I can't imagine a life where that's not a huge part of what I'm thinking. My thoughts and deeds are polluted with sin. I have not lived one perfect life, not one perfect minute. I can't imagine a life without that paradigm. I can't think and imagine and dream it. I can dream about a lot of things. I can't, I can't imagine that, honestly. I do things I don't want to do, and guess what? I don't do things that I want to do. I can't imagine a life that that doesn't occur. My body's not strong. I'm, some of you I'm older than. Some of you I'm younger than. So you can take this with a grain of salt and relate it to yourself. Body stops doing the things I want it to do around this time. I can't imagine a life without that either. Sometimes I'm afraid people don't like me. Sometimes I'm afraid I'm not good enough. Sometimes I think I'm too good. I can't imagine a life thinking about all those things. I worry about my children. I worry about the world. I worry I'm wasting time saying the wrong thing thinking the wrong thing. These are on my mind. Not all the time, but sometimes. I cannot conceptualize an existence without those things. So why bring them up? Because I know that he who began a good work in me is going to be faithful to complete it. And that is the promise that our Lord has given us in his scripture to those who are children of God. So even though I can't imagine it, I don't know what it would look like. I can't even pretend to have the feeling for a moment to try it on for size. I can hope in it. I can hold fast to it. That he is going to finish the work that he has set out to do. Because he is a faithful and good and kind and just and merciful God. And not only is he sovereign over all of his creation and rule. Not only is he mighty to save. Not only did he set the boundaries of the ocean and build up the mountains. But he even knows where the mountain goats give birth, doesn't he? He knows all things. 
Certainly that is a God who does what he wills and sets out to do. His decrees are perfect, it says in our confession chapter 3. So it reminds me that even though I can't imagine a life like that, I can read about a life like that. Christ never sinned. Christ never sinned. And he never sinned for me and for his children. And he died. But he conquered death. He conquered death for his children. And in his body, he saw no decay. My body feels like it's wasting away. We could say, raise your hand if you feel like that, but it would probably be a little depressing. But Christ's body saw no decay. And on the third day, he rose again. And in so doing, he went first so we can go with him. Where I am weak, he is strong. I believe. Help my unbelief, Lord. I believe. I am weak. Be strong for me. And if our Lord can overcome the Samaritans and Marduk and Bel and Cyrus and Darius and something like a piddly Red Sea that's stopping the Israelites from escaping, not to give away Nate's sermons, if he can overcome all of those things, he can overcome the sin, the hurt, and the worry in this world. And he will. He promises to come back and make it all new. And there is a day coming. No tears, no pain, no fear, no sin. But that day... I don't think is today. That day is coming. And so now we hold on fast. We hold on desperate. And we hold on to Jesus Christ, who is both the author and perfecter, and who accomplishes all that he sets out to do. Amen and amen. Amen. Lord God in heaven, maker of heaven and of earth, We pray, Lord, that you come soon and set everything right. We pray, Lord, that you free us from this bondage to sin and death and misery. And in so doing, Lord, we can see you face to face. And yet for now, Lord, we pray that you give us courage and strength in Jesus Christ's name so that we who are aliens and wanderers and sojourners in exile can remain faithful, Lord. And yet even then we know it is you who provide the faithfulness. Lord, we love you. Thank you for building your temple, your spiritual temple. Thank you that we can come and worship you in spirit and in truth. And until your kingdom comes, Lord, we pray that you are merciful and you shine your eye upon us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.